Welcome to the fourth Usefiser chat. And uh, as of you see today, we actually only have Carl today. So, Carl, go ahead with your first question for Tom. All right. Uh, so, Tom, what I wanted to ask you is that obviously in this in this PMR and other realities, uh, everything's simulated. It's all electrical impulses. You know, you touch this, this is hard, etc., and it's all simulated. So, what I wanted to ask is that applying that same principle are emotions real or are they just are they simulated in the same way that you know a table would be simulated to us yeah. uh, no there's a there's a very big difference there Kyle um, consciousness is fundamental and our virtual reality is what's simulated so the environment our bodies you know all the rocks and stones and buildings and and the, the sky and so on all of this physical universe is simulated that doesn't make it not real it's it's real it's information and it's as information is as real as it gets but the emotions go with the consciousness it's part of consciousness so it's not it's not part of the virtual reality virtual reality plays in consciousness just like you may play in the sims game but you're not simulated in the Sims game. Your consciousness is not simulated in the Sims game. So consciousness here is the player. So it's not uh, simulated in the same way the virtual reality is. As far as emotions go, that's just a part of consciousness. Consciousness uh, comes in with a few assumptions. And one of them, of course, is, is its defining assumption. And that's its awareness. You know, it has awareness. And within that awareness is also um, an ability to uh, to assess what it's aware of and come to some conclusions about what it's aware of, you know, to think about what it's aware of. So the thinking uh, and aware all come together, and also part of that is feeling. So the emotions and the thinking and the feeling are part of awareness, and they just come into my model as assumptions along with consciousness. Now, consciousness is a digital information system. That's my model, that consciousness is a digital information system. Remember, that's just a model, a metaphor, if you like, and a way to describe consciousness. So in that sense, if we apply that, that metaphor, we'd say that in some way, consciousness is information and processing. And part of that processing is feeling and, and emotion. It's part of the way it processes and expresses it's information. So it's that feeling is just an attribute of consciousness. It's not part of the virtual reality simulation. Right. Okay. So what you're saying is that emotion with consciousness, so consciousness is awareness. And in right. that awareness, there is, that's where the emotion. Like, yes. If, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, Another question I want to ask you as well is in the interim stage, that is the stage obviously after, after you die, after you've left this PMR and your avatars here and your consciousness is elsewhere, because you're no longer bound by like the rule, the rule set here, are you able to do things like, uh, changing data stream like at will and, and freely? Um, Yes, you can. When you, when you leave this virtual reality, uh, you immediately upon death, um, your, 
you find yourself back as the the um, individuated unit of consciousness. So you, when you were player, when you were a player, you were called the free will awareness unit. Okay, and that's what the player was. As soon as you die, you start to reintegrate to the individuated unit of consciousness. The free will awareness unit was just a piece of that individuated unit of consciousness. And I, I use the metaphor that there's a petition. The free, the uh, the individuated unit of consciousness partitions off a piece of itself, forms a free will awareness unit, and that free will awareness unit is the player. So once you die, then you begin, that partition comes down, and you begin to reintegrate and just become a part of the individuated unit of consciousness again. And as such, you can do any of the things that consciousness can do. If you know about it, if you have an intent to do it, but most people don't know about it, so they don't really have an intent to do anything else. So they're just kind of led through the transition process of of um, uh, deciding on what their next lifetime is going to be like, and what are the what are the things they need to learn and that sort of thing. So they spend that time there, and some of them who are more aware could go off and do other things, could use that space to. Uh, um, you know, go explore other parts of consciousness if they wanted to. Most don't know enough about it to really take those options. Those options are available, but they're not used so often because people just aren't aware that the option's there. But yes, it's available. Right. Right. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you that I found quite an intriguing question was, uh, Say, hypothetically speaking, of course, um, everyone in the entirety of the LCS became enlightened, had, you know, minimal entropy, the lowest entropy possible, and everything was at its lowest state of entropy. Um, would that be the end of evolving? Uh, because, obviously, enlightenment is, you know, you, you're lowering your entropy present moment things like that so if everyone was to become enlightened and in the present moment all the time would that mark the end of like evolution uh no and there's a couple of reasons um two very different reasons from different directions and one is the the number of seats or the number of players in this game is not a fixed number it's not like there's just so many players and eventually they will all grow up and uh, become low entropy. There's always new players coming in at the bottom end that, you know, have a lot of growing to do. They're on their first lifetime. So you have, you have a lot of new consciousness always coming in at the, at kind of the bottom level. So you won't likely ever get up to the point where everybody's grown up. Okay. So that's one thing. The second thing is that entropy is such that if you don't keep putting effort into something, then the entropy will just automatically increase. So, you know, we know that about our physical world works the same way. If you don't put maintenance into your house or to your car, eventually the house will cave in and the car will stop running. You have to constantly put energy in in order to keep entropy low. When no energy is put in, then entropy just naturally grows. That's called the second law of thermodynamics. Just a kind of a fact of, of, of life, I guess, or even a fact of consciousness. So if we got to a point where, let's say, just for argument's sake, that everyone was very low entropy, well, 
you still have to keep working to keep that entropy low. Because as soon as you say, okay, well, we're all done. We're all really low entropy, so we can, you know, there's nothing left to do. Then in a very short time, ego would start to grow. Fear would start to grow. That, uh, you know, entropy would start to go up all by itself. So you constantly have to be exercising your quality, if you will, exercising, making choices that matter. And you have to do that all the time. If you stop, then you'll begin to de-evolve. So we're never, we're never really going to run out of space to evolve into. The only way that could happen is if there just wasn't any more, um, what should we say? There wasn't any more growth room within the system, but that's almost impossible. Nothing's impossible, but that's almost impossible in that you have billions of of individuals with free will, which if you look at all the different ways that those individuals can interact with each other, it's like quadrillions of quadrillions of quadrillions. You know, it's a really, really huge number of ways that you could interact with all of those free will players, things that you might do with it. So the number of states to expand into is huge is very very high to the point that you'll probably never get there it's it's uh, not infinite but it's practically infinite in a practical sense uh, given that there is so much possibility with all of the players and all the things they might do and all the choices and how they interact with each other that uh, it's unlikely it'll ever run out of of states to grow in and there always will be growing room and there's always something to do. If you stop working, then you start de-evolving. So constant effort has to, has to be taken. Now it could be a much kinder, gentler place. If almost everybody was low entropy, then there wouldn't be all the mean and, and nasty and, and greed and, you know, self-centered stuff going on in the world. It'd be a much nicer place, but you'd still have to constantly be on your toes. Otherwise, Pretty soon, uh, clicks would form and then there'd be some people who would feel like they were more evolved than others and that's called ego and, you know, the whole thing would start to, uh, to fall apart again. So that, uh, always is going to require us to stay on our toes and keep working at it, keep experiencing, keep interacting, keep being challenged. Right. So evolution is like this nev- basically never ending uh, journey, if you will, then. That's right. Evolution is very open-ended. It doesn't really have a, a stopping point. The way evolution works is that you take its output at any given time, and that then becomes its input. And the evolution makes changes, you know, modifies that input, gives you a new output, which then becomes its input. So it's a, it's what in mathematics they call it's an open-ended, you know, system. So it just keeps going. Its output is always returned into its input and more evolution takes place. So it's a, it's an open-ended system that doesn't have any, uh, stopping point. It's only stopping point is if there are no unique patterns yet to, uh, to assume, you know, that everything has been tried that's possible. But like I say, that's highly unlikely with so many units of free will. And as big as the, as the system is, it's got so much complexity and so many parts that to, to, uh, explore the, all of the potential from the interaction of all of the parts is just unfathomable that, uh, that will ever be a problem.
And if so, the system could always, you know, uh, take that low entropy and, you know, create and, you know, and let it kind of go off on itself on, on maintenance so that it always had to maintain itself and start up another virtual reality that was uh, not quite so grown up where the, where newer, newer, uh, individuated units of consciousness could, uh, could play. So there's, there's really no end to the system. It just keeps, keeps going. Right. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Um, another thing I wanted to ask is if there are approximately seven and a half billion to eight billion, uh, individuated units of consciousness in this PMR, how many would there be in the entirety of the LCS, you know, with the millions, if not billions of other realities? <laughs> a lot. Yes, there'd be a whole lot. I've been in, in a, you know, maybe a dozen, two dozen different reality frames like this one, you know, that look, that seem like they're physical realities and not, I wasn't able like the, take a reading of the population i didn't have that big a view when i was there it was just like i was you know just kind of dropped in as one of them and I, I didn't have that kind of a sense of it but it seemed very much like here in in that sense there seems to be a lot of people everywhere so yes there's probably at least dozens of reality frames that probably have billions of players in them so it's it's a very large it's a very large system and one of the things that's interesting about that uh, is that, you know, let's take our own, just our own virtual reality, our physical universe. How many seats does the larger conscious system need in this particular simulator, right? Our What we call our physical universe is a, is a game. Well, how many seats does it need? It's trying to evolve, and if you put more more seats in there that means more players you know you have more more people more players then each player requires a certain amount of overhead right you got to feed that that player with a data stream you have to compute all of its interactions with all the other players so there's some there's some overhead there's some computation that goes along with each player but how much does another player add to the overall value of the virtual reality game you see so there's a you'll get to a point in our virtual reality game where adding more players starts to not give that much back compared to the overhead that it costs to feed those players with data streams. So you can see that the, the system, um, will always, you know, because this, this is an ongoing game. So as babies are born, uh, the population goes up. If the babies born are more than the people dying, Population goes up, that means more seats in the game. But there's going to be some point where it's no longer going to be profitable for the system to maintain that. There's some point where it's, you know, adding more seats. It's not getting that much more value back out of it as far as the whole system evolution goes. So there may be some point where the system would like to kind of keep our numbers from going but so high. And of course, it could always do that since it's in charge of the environment. You know, there could always be floods or earthquakes or, you know, meteorites that strike or other kinds of things. If it, if it got to the point where there were too many seats, it could fix that with uh, some kind of uh, catastrophe 
or it could take the excess and move them to a different reality frame. You know, let them populate some other reality frame, uh, not this one. So it's hard to say, but it is kind of interesting. I agree with you. It's kind of interesting thinking about uh, the numbers and how many do you need and does that number go on forever? And what I'm saying now is, no, it doesn't go on forever. The system isn't going to just keep adding more and more seats, you know, forever. It'll get to a point where it has enough seats in each of its reality frames. And, you know, when that happens, then uh, either it'll take care of itself, just like, you know, any biological system has what's called a carrying capacity. You know, how many individuals can live there before there's too many too many mouths to feed and not enough food? And then they start to become self-limiting. You know, then the, the system, the, the people start to die out because it's it's harder and harder to survive with that sort of competition for for not enough food or not enough resources. So in that case, then the population takes care of itself. It kind of tops out and the people then have to learn to control that population to a point where everybody can live a good quality of life. And those kinds of choices may be ours, you know, who knows, uh, you know, a, a century from now. Hard to say. We may get to the point that uh, the carrying capacity for humans on this planet has kind of reached its its peak. But we'll see. Interesting questions. Interesting things to think about. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you, Tom. Another thing I thought was interesting as well was the uh, concept of like beginner's luck. You know, you've had you get people who happen to play. You know, they play golf or something, and they and they get it in first try. Things things like that. And then you've got someone who's been playing for, you know, years and they struggle to get it in um, first try. And it's it's things like that, like beginner's luck. And I was wondering if you could explain to me how uh, beginner's luck and things like that kind of work into MBT. Sure. Yes. Beginner's luck is a real is a real thing. The reason beginners are lucky is because beginners don't have any performance anxiety. They're not carrying around fear. They're not carrying around, uh, um, uh, you know, issues of performance. So if you are, say, the first time that you've ever played golf or the first time you've ever, say, gone bowling and you're relaxed with it, it's, say, let's take bowling because that probably requires a little less skill than, than uh, being good at golf. Uh, if you If you walk up and you grab a bowling ball and you heave it down the alley and you want to knock pins down, if you're very relaxed, you don't feel like you have to perform because you've never done it before. Nobody expects you to do very well. You don't expect yourself to do well. So it's, oh, yeah, okay, I'll just give it a try and see what happens. When you're relaxed like that, you tend to do much better. You're relaxed. You're at ease. You're not full of fear. Fear makes you clumsy. Fear makes you uh, non, um, you know, it, it interferes with your coordination. Fear is a, is an inhibitor. Fear isn't smooth. Fear is, is jerky. So when you do something athletic like golf or, or bowling, that fear, that aggravation, when somebody gets up there and they really want to put that ball close to that cup, they really want to, and they've, you know, they've worked at it, but they don't do it very often. And then they don't really expect to do it and they want to do it so much and it means a lot to them. 
and they want to get their technique just right, and they got their grip just right, and they, you know, they're doing all this thing. They've watched the videos, they've had the trainer, and they're really focused on doing it just right. All of that intellectual stuff gets in the way and makes it not work very well for them. To do well, you have to be relaxed. You have to be easy. You can't be uptight and full of fear. The swing has to be natural. And that's true of any athletic thing or anything that the body, that the body does. Here's an example. If you take, uh, let's say a, a two by six, that's a piece of wood, right? That's six, six inches wide and two inches thick. If you just lay that on the ground, on flat ground, Almost everybody can walk across it from one end to the other. Let's say it's 20 feet long. Almost everybody can can uh, walk on six inches of wood and not fall off. If you take that same wood and put it 100 feet in the air over rocks, suspend it so it's just as sturdy and just as steady as before, you'll find that a lot of people will fall off of it. They won't be able to get to the other side. The reason they can't get to the other side is fear. Fear makes you afraid to take the next step. And when you do, it's tentative and it's not smooth and easy. You know, it's awkward and bulky. So people fall off. You'd probably have 20 or 30% of the people couldn't walk across a two by six, a hundred feet in the air over rocks. Their fear would make them fall off. Well, it's the same thing with beginner's luck. You're fearless because you're a beginner. You have nothing to prove. No, uh, you know, no record to beat. Uh, nobody's going to make fun of you if you don't do well. You know, you're just relaxed. And because of that, you're better. Physically, you're better. All athletes will tell you, you know, the really good athletes, like the ones that end up in the, in the, uh, Olympics, they will tell you that whether you win, come in first or come in fifth is mostly a mental game. Everybody's trained. Everybody's strong. Everybody knows all the right moves. It's that, it's that attitude. It's that uh, mental space where you are, where you are very calm and relaxed and you're not thinking about what you're doing. You're just doing it, being in the zone, working at the being level. That will make you more coordinated and smoother, more um, coordinated and uh, better able to accomplish anything athletic, whether it's golfing or bowling or, you know, wrestling or anything else. Right. So it's almost like through being um, fearful and full of ego, you're changing future probability. Yeah. Well, you do. You change the future probability of your, of your success. You're not going to be as successful if you are, Concerned, if you're uptight, if you're worried about the results, you have to just be and let the results be however they are. So as soon as your ego gets into needing to succeed, needing to look good in front of others, needing to whatever, even needing to beat your own score, if that need gets to be up front in your mind, then you'll probably do worse and you won't beat your, your best score. You won't be as good because that best score was done when you just relaxed and did it and didn't think about it at all. It's getting that intellect involved is the problem. The intellect, you're trying to guide your body by your intellect is a very clumsy way to guide your body. It's much better for your body to just be coordinated and it knows how to balance. It knows how to swim. It knows how to do that. That's because you practice a lot. And once you practice and know your body knows what to do, 
You just have to get out of the way and let it do it. And you'll be more successful than if you try to manage it. Right. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Uh, another thing I was curious about is help from the LCS. So what I mean by that is if you make a decision that causes you to de-evolve and heighten your entropy, uh, will the LCS kind of give you an opportunity or steer you onto a better, a better path? Um, one that gives you like more of an opportunity to evolve? Yeah, generally it does. It tries to be helpful because we're a part of it. Our success is its success. So it wants us to succeed in, in growing up because that's partly how it grows up. Is we're a part of it, so as we grow up, it grows up too. So it would like to help us if we're open to that help. So yes, if you are, uh, you know, let's say your ego is a problem for you, then it may conspire to have that ego really, you know, hit you right between the eyes with a really hard smack. You know, use that, that ego just really gets you into trouble. You know, that ego ends up uh, creating a lot of trouble for you. And it may help you find that trouble just because that smack between the eyes, you know, with that ego will maybe wake you up and let you think about why you did what you did that caused all that trouble and therefore learn about it and, and grow up. So the system can do that. And it can also give us opportunities. If there's some sort of a, a situation where let's say someone annoys you and, and you kind of feel like getting angry and, you know, slapping them or throwing something at them. And that's just what you feel like. And you may get this idea that that's not a good idea. That isn't going to help. But you're so angry that you just do it anyway. Well, now, you know, the system tried to give you an opportunity to do it a different way by putting that idea. That isn't really a good idea and won't help. But you overrode it because you override that because you are uh, so angry. Then little things like that it'll do. And uh, then it'll probably remind you later, well, you know, you could have done it differently. You know, instead of flying off the handle, you could have handled that in a different way. And it may tell you those things, but if you're open to it and listen and you think about that and you say, you know, you're right. I really messed that up. I'm not going to let that happen again. Now the system's going to work with you. But if you never listen and you just keep doing the same thing and the system says, you know, you could have done that differently and you go, yeah, but he was such a jerk. I needed to do that. That was the best thing to do. And you always justify everything you do. Then the system stops working with you so much because you're just not paying attention. So it tends to help those people who are engaged in growing up and those people who really aren't engaged in growing up, it mostly leaves them alone to their own devices. Right. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Um, so if I'm playing a game, for example, um, and it's online and I do something wrong, uh, I break a rule or something and one of the administrators, uh, they, you know, they'll pull me over or something like that. Um, and I'll get a punishment or a reprimand, whatever, for breaking that rule. Is there a similar system or a system like that in within the LCS? Uh, not really. There's not administrators so much like that. Um, there are, there is the larger consciousness system. 
And you, you can, if you're interested in growing, you can have your own personal link to that system, your own interface to that system. That interface, uh, often people call those interfaces their guides or, you know, other, other kind of language, their helpers or their friends. And it's just an interface with the system. And that interface can help you. That interface can pull you aside sometimes and, and put an idea in your head of maybe a better way you could have done something or uh, kind of remind you uh, or give you some help about, you know, what a, what a better choice would be. So in that sense, you get it, but not really an administrator that, that uh, that's going to pull you aside for making poor choices. Now, for breaking the rules is a little different. If you break a rule, now the way I mean by breaking a rule, because you could come here in this virtual reality and, and make any kind of horrible choice, and that's not breaking a rule. You have free will. You can make, you know, horrible choices. Yeah. So that, that wouldn't break a rule. But let's say some other entity, some other IUOC comes from one of those other virtual reality frames, uh, not this universe, but some other one, and they come here and they create trouble here. They come here and, and interact with the players or somehow, uh, you know, raise entropy here. Now that would be against the rules of the system. The system doesn't want outsiders, you know, coming into this game, coming into the schoolhouse and messing with the players. You know, that's against the rules. So in that case, if the system was aware of that and the system may or may not be aware, but if it becomes aware of that, then it would fix that situation. It would pull that entity out, send them back where they came from and told them not to do that again. And if they do it again, they probably would be sent back again, but after a while, the system would lose patience and they would just be banned from that system. So there just wouldn't be any way for them to get there. It would be just disallowed. So it'd be like they'd run into a wall. They'd be banished, if you will, from, from, uh, from doing that sort of thing. So in that sense, sort of, but not really in the same sense as your game. So you, you will probably, you might break rules in a game. Um, because you don't understand what, you know, what the rules are. But, but here our game is everybody makes choices with free will and that's okay. So there really aren't any rules as, as far as behavior goes here. You can do, you can behave however you want, however badly or well that you want to. And that's not really a broken rule. There are no rules. Otherwise you wouldn't have free will. If you had rules that, that, that said, well, you can't do that and you can't make these choices. Well, then you don't have free will. So we don't have any behavioral rules that uh, would get somebody taken aside, but there still are some rules between systems and so on that uh, have to be obeyed. For instance, uh, people in the non-physical can can uh, interact with physical beings, can can um, communicate with them, but they can't choose for them. They can't force them. They can't bully them. Basically, they, you know, all they can do is encourage them to do this or that. So you may have a guide or you may have uh, something that's negative that's encouraging you to do things that are high entropy, but they can't make you do it. They can only encourage you to do it. If you do it, it's still your choice. You have the free will to say yes or say no. Right. Okay. Thanks, Tom. Um. On the subject of punishment, actually, um, if you were to like 
commit a crime. Um, so like, uh, as an extreme example, uh, murder someone in this, uh, PMR. Um, after you leave this reality, would you be taken aside? Would you be like punished or, or reprimanded for that? Would you, or at least be spoken to? Uh, spoken to, yes, but not reprimanded and not punished. What would happen is that, um, if you de-evolved in a, in your reality more than just a little bit, you know, if it, if it was serious de-evolution because you, you murdered or did other things that were, uh, uh, not just bad, but really bad, then this, the, uh, process where you des- decide what you're going to do next, you would be met with someone who would be like a counselor and go over the problem and the issues and why it is you made those bad choices and try to give you some some guidance, some counseling about how to do better. And then they would help put you in a next lifetime where it would be easier for you to succeed. It would be a, a situation that didn't necessarily have um, so many uh, opportunities to do it wrong. It would be harder to, you know, it would be harder to get in trouble. So, so those kinds of things is really what would happen. The system wants them to succeed. They want them to stop de-evolving and start evolving. So what they're going to do is try to help them see the errors that they made, see why it was dysfunctional, try to get them to, you know, focus on not doing that or outgrowing that propensity and then put them in a, in an experience packet where they are likely to succeed. And, you know, just like, uh, you know, people put up basketball nets for their children. If the children are only six and seven years old, generally you only put the net up about six feet high so that they can, you know, get the ball that far because when you're only six or seven, you're not even strong enough to put a, you know, to throw a basketball high enough in the air to get it in the net. So it's like you can never make it. You can never win. You can never make a point because you're just too little. So for little children, you put the basket lower so that they can succeed, you know, because success is what makes them try harder and makes them have fun at the game. Whereas if they never succeed, then the game gets boring and they don't want to play it anymore. So it's the same way. The system will make it easier and easier for somebody who's having trouble and failing by giving them things that are less and less uh, challenging. And I suspect that if they failed, and failed and failed and failed, maybe they wouldn't be human the next time. Maybe they'd come back, you know, maybe as a monkey or a dog or something else that gave them even a, a smaller choice of, of, uh, you know, of options to do where it's harder to really mess up. So, yeah, the system wants people to turn around and start evolving. So punishment is not, is not helpful. It's to help people grow up is what the system really tries to do. Right. So in a way, the LCS is kind of like uh, like a mentor. Would that be the right way to put it? Yeah, like a mentor. That would be a good way to put it. They try to help whatever it is that's help. You know, sometimes what an entity needs is some real strong challenges because they've been lazy. You know, they've just taken kind of easy, easy incarnations. They've not been challenged very much and the system may try to nudge them into something a little stronger, something that has more challenge for them because you can't grow very much if your challenges are all very small. Um, other times, like I say, they take people who, who 
are too challenged. They weren't able to meet the challenge. The challenge was more than they were able to, to take care of. So in that case, they'll try to make that a little easier. And even within a lifetime, the system tries to do that. So when, if, if you are, uh, you know, if you're a good person struggling and you're learning from that struggle, that's good. But if that starts to, if that starts to, uh, turn you toward, uh, you know, a, uh, higher entropy path, then the system may try to do something to help bump you out, give you a break. You know, right at that desperate moment, you get a new job or, you know, something comes through and that's the system trying to help people kind of get back on their feet. So yes, it can, it can do things like that. So mentor is a good, a good word. Yeah. Sometimes in, in, um, particularly religious circles, the, the uh, relationship isn't mentor. It's more like parent. You know, it's your father or your mother, uh, you know, taking care of you. Well, it's got a little bit of that in it, but I think mentor is a much better, uh, a much better word. Somebody that's kind of looking out for you, help you grow up, but they leave it up to you. They're not going to hold your hand. They're not going to do it for you. They're not going to protect you if you make bad decisions. You have to make your own choices and then you have to suffer the consequences of those choices. Right. Okay. Right. Thank you, Tom. Uh, so before you've covered things like uh, breaking the rule set and you've you've said that we can uh, bend the rules. But to what extent can we uh, bend the wall, bend the rules? So, for example, if I was advanced enough, say I'd been meditating for years, maybe I was enlightened. Would I be able to in this PMR um, get up and, you know, as an extreme example, fly around, providing there was no observers uh, because of plausible deniability. Would, would I be able to, to do something like that or would I be stopped? Well, you probably would not do it physically because why bother physically when you can, quote, fly around, unquote, mentally so much easier and it doesn't create any stir. In other words, you can learn to project your, your awareness anywhere you want. We call that remote viewing, but remote viewing doesn't have to be just looking at things on the planet. Remote viewing can be in real time. You know, you can, you can, uh, you know, blind people can learn to see with their mind rather than see with their eyes. That's a, it's a process that's really like remote viewing. It's just a, you know, slightly, slightly different. So if you wanted to fly around, that's easy. You can fly around anytime, and even if there's lots of people watching, it doesn't make any difference because it's you flying around as awareness, not flying around as a body. So there's hardly anything that really is that valuable which you want to take your body along unless, um, you know, you would like to uh, take your body someplace else, right? Uh, airplane travel is really uh, uh, a lot of trouble these days, uh, long lines to stand in at security, and, you know, it's a – it's kind of a high stress uh, process for many people. It'd be nice if you could just teleport to uh, China rather than have to, uh, you know, take an airplane or teleport to someplace really far away, you know, like uh, Australia and be a lot better than a 30 hour uh, airplane ride. But those sorts of things, if you took your body with you, would just create problems. You know, you just disappear one place and appear. The disappearance would be a problem on one end. 
and the appearance would be a problem on the other. So that kind of things would not be easy to cover up or kind of slip by. Now, if you could, you know, get away with that in the sense that there would be no record that says that you disappeared and no record that says that you appeared someplace, um, you probably couldn't do it too often or you'd end up uh, creating a problem. But if you did it once or twice, you might get away with that if you wanted to. But for the most part, I think when you're that grown up, you really don't need to do that sort of thing. It's not really all that valuable a skill to have. So I'd say, no, it's not impossible. Again, you have the plausible deniability on both ends to worry about, but as long as you covered that, then everything else is generally workable. You'd have to have a good working relationship with the LCS because the LCS would have to, um, you know, give you the proper data streams and everybody else the proper data streams for doing that. So it would be done in cooperation with the LCS. And if you were good about uh, leaving no, uh, you know, uh, problems lying about, then the LCS may play with you and and let you do that kind of thing. So there's almost nothing that's impossible, but there's a lot of things that are unlikely. And one of the reasons that it's unlikely is that if you get to the point where you could do something like that, you generally have no interest in doing things like that. Right. Okay. Yeah. Like for another another example of that would be that you have reports of and and uh, people have demonstrated that they can do just fine without food. So you have people that uh, you know don't eat or drink for that matter for months or years, and that is basically breaking the rule set. But they can do that again as long as the, there's the you know the deniable uh, possibilities that they're cheating or something else could still be a possibility. But they take these people and they lock them in rooms with nothing to eat, and they monitor everything that goes on in there, and they have you know the, keep the doors locked and guards at the door and so on. And they've done that various experiments for months at a time. And the people come out and they're about the same weight they were when they went in and they're, they still seem to be healthy and they don't have a problem. So things like that can be done. There's stories of people who are, you know, hundreds of years old. The same thing. That would be breaking the rule set. So it's not that any of those things are impossible. They're in, they're unlikely in the sense that not many people will be able to do them. So it's a very few number in the margins that could. And as long as those few, do it without making a, any difficulties for the system, then okay, that kind of rule breaking goes in, goes on in the margins. But I think the reason that there's so few people who do it is that those that could, for the most part, aren't interested. Right. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Um, I know you're probably aware of of games like uh, you know Grand Theft Auto Five. You go around in this in this big uh, virtual reality. It's more like a simulation than a game, actually. But you you go around and you can you know steal cars and go on go on big old killing sprees and and things like that. And in the event someone well, um was to kill you, well you know you might be a bit annoyed and you, you'd respawn. So while it might be a bit of an absurd question, I was going to ask: Would there be a system like that in in other realities? 
Well, certainly not in this reality. If you get killed in this reality, then you do respond, but not in the same body. You know, you respond as a as as an infant, starting off another uh, you know another life packet. So you you respond in that way. You just don't come back exactly the way you were with all your treasures and and tools and implements and spells and you know whatever else you used to have. You know, you don't just come back like you were before. Uh, but in other reality systems, you know, I don't know. I've been in many of them, and I'm trying to think now if any of them had, uh, if there was anything that I noticed, but I didn't notice anything like that. But that doesn't mean there weren't any because, you know, how do you notice? You know, it's a little hard to notice unless you just happen to be there where somebody, uh, you know, gets uh, run over by a cement truck and then they pop, you know, right back up and it's the same person. I've never seen that happen. But maybe I just wasn't at the right place at the right time, you know, to uh, to to see that happen. So I'd say probably not, because there's a well, I don't know. Probably not, but maybe don't don't really know. I guess that's just another way of playing the game, right? Where you get to to start making your choices again, right from where you left off with the same with the same player with the same avatar. And uh, I can see that there's certain advantages to that and certain disadvantages to that. The disadvantage is, is that pretty soon your avatar, you know, if you keep your same avatar forever, pretty soon you're you're a uh, uh, level 100 or something, you know, and, and you're so much bigger and badder and better than anybody else. And you've played the game so long that you know it so well and you've seen all the all the bosses and all the monsters and, you know, right where they hide out and everything just gets too easy and it's no, not fun anymore. And you can, you know, if you play with other groups, well, it's hard to play with groups because those people are just not very good players compared to you and they're always getting in the way and they're always being a nuisance. So you kind of play for yourself, but that isn't any fun anymore. So you see, you kind of get to a point where you, where you uh, kind of paint yourself in a corner. And the amount of growth you have, the growing, the learning, the becoming, which is what's fun, you know, it's, that's that's where the fun comes from. Uh, that starts to to get asymptotic and and go away. So there's some point where it's a whole lot better to just let that character go and start over with a with a new character that has to start learn all the all the ropes again in a in a different situation because that's where the choices come from for growing up. It's all of those, all those new choices that you have. So, you know, it's possible that they could have a game like that, but I think in the long term, you've got to end that character. You just can't keep that character going all the time because pretty soon you get in a rut and, uh, your, your amount of, of learning starts to get slower and slower. Your rate of learning gets slower and slower because you've just been there too long. You need to start over and find more challenging things to do. Right. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Another thing I wanted to ask you was uh, after meditation, obviously, once you meditate uh, for 10, 15 minutes, once you've been meditating for a few weeks, you know, your ego, your entropy, it lowers. Um, so what I've noticed, uh, especially when when I do uh, meditate and my ego's shrunken and I've noticed it's shrunken, that I'll notice that I'll have relapses wherein my ego will try and um kind of reinsert itself and 
you know, I might be doing really well. I'll, I've meditated for a couple of weeks every day for like 15, 20 minutes. And, you know, I've improved. Uh, I might have got really angry when I got killed, but now I don't really mind it so much in a game. Um, but today I might get, get really angry all of a sudden. And I've noticed that your ego kind of try, tries to reinsert itself. So mm-hmm. is that is that kind of a, a normal thing? Yeah, that's a couple of things that, that make that happen. One of them, as I say, if you don't keep putting effort into um, decreasing your ego, your ego will just naturally continue to grow. If you don't put effort into getting rid of your fears, you know, you will just collect fears as you uh, – as you go, you'll maintain all those fears. You won't get rid of any of them. You'll keep adding new ones to them. So it always takes work. So when you stop working on it, then you start to backslide. You know, the entropy starts to go up all by itself. So you have to keep working at it. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing is that often when you make some progress, that's because you've made, let's say you've taken a fear and you've taken that fear, which is maybe a, a fear. Uh, we'll say we're going to rate our fear for how fear, how scary it is from a, you know, one to 10. And maybe it was a 10 fear and maybe you pushed it back to a six fear. Well, now you feel a lot lighter. You know, that fear isn't making you angry anymore. That fear is not making you insecure anymore, but you didn't get rid of it. All you did is decreased its effect on you. And if you don't keep working at it, that fear will come right back it um, if you get rid of a fear completely get rid of it then it doesn't grow back but if all you do is trim it and uh, make it a little nicer and easier to live with it'll just come back in some other way and particularly if we just use our intellect to do it let's say um, for example um, you know kindness you might come to the conclusion that it's good to be kind and being kind to people is a low entropy thing, and you'd like to be kind. Well, then you can make an effort to be kind to people. And every time you see a place where you can be kind, you try to be kind. And you do that for a while, and pretty soon you're, you know, you are a kind person, it seems. You're at least you're acting very kind. But that doesn't mean you are kind. It doesn't mean that you are kind at the being level. It just means that you intellectually have thought that that's a good thing to do, and now you're, you are, your intellect is making you do it or telling you to do it. And you do it willingly, but still it's just at the intellectual level. So in that case, that kindness just disappears. It evaporates very quickly when you're no longer focused on being kind. You know, you kind of let that go. That like is old news. Now you're, now you're in some other space. And that kindness doesn't really transfer, doesn't come with you. That's because you hadn't really ever become kind. You've just been acting kind. So being kind and acting kind are two very different things. So sometimes when you get better and you're feeling lighter and your ego doesn't seem to bother you, it may be because you're acting better because you think you should be and you're not really being better. Or it could be that you've gotten lazy and you're not really working on it anymore, so you backslide. You know, both of those things happen. So, yeah, it is normal. It is normal that you make a little progress and then you, you know, two, two steps forward, one step backward. You know, that's kind of typical where you you uh, you gain some and then lose it and gain some more. And that's okay as long as in the long term you're gaining more than you're losing. 
if you're gaining, you know, if you're always taking three steps forward and only two backward, well, eventually you're going to move forward. You're going more forward than you are backward. So that'll work. Better to take all three steps forward. But if uh, three forward and two back is best you can do, then that'll work fine. It's just a slower, a slower path. So that's a normal thing. And so is even meditation. There are times when you may really feel like you want to meditate and you do meditate and it feels great and you do it. And six months later, you're not meditating at all. You haven't meditated, you know, for a month and you just don't feel like it. Well, that's okay. You go through cycles where you're very connected to your consciousness and to the non-physical and you go through times when you're not. That's because you need time to integrate. You need time to, to learn, to take things from the intellect down to the being level. So you may have a lot of, you know, you may spend months meditating, kind of learn a bunch of things, but now you have to take that learning and get it down to the being level to where it changes who you are, not just your behavior. And during that time, you may not be meditating. You may be just paying attention to how you interact and what your motivations are. So you may be focused here. And then uh, once you integrate that and you've changed yourself, now you go on, you may get back into meditation again. So things like that cycle. It's not a bad thing to stop meditating for, you know, for six months or a year and then start it back up again. It's just where you are in that part of your life. You're either, uh, you're either uh, grabbing new challenges, which is generally what happens as you meditate, or you're working on integrating challenges and choices you've already made, trying to learn everything you can learn from them. Move it from the intellect down to the being level, which takes time. That's not a quick process. Right. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Another thing I wanted to ask you about is, uh, say if you're running late and you really need to be at, say, for example, a job meeting and it's an interview for a job you really, really need. Say if you're, say if you're running late and you get in your car and you'll start to pull out and all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, there'll be this massive long line of cars just kind of, you know, going past you and you can't pull out. And then when you do get out of there, you'll stop. And every, every traffic light, there'll be just red lights and everything seems to just be going wrong and not your way. And it's, you know, and it all happens when you really need to be in this place. Why do <laughs> things like that happen? It's just the opposite of beginner's luck. It's because you are so uptight and you need so much to do something that um, you are now creating problems. Your your fear of not getting there on time, all of that angst, all of that anxiety, all of that tension and stress goes to create more tension and stress in your environment, more things that get in your way. So the what you, what you need to do there is make sure you leave in plenty of time to get there, even if there's clogs and accidents and everything else, instead of waiting for the very last second of the last minute, you know, to jump in your car and speedily get to where you're going just in time. You need to allow a lot of extra time so you can take it easy, or you just need to see, realize that, well, some days are like that. Some days are just, you know, you're going to get in your car and you're not going to go anywhere because that's just the way it is. There's an accident someplace and traffic's backed up in every direction. And if you've got some sort of meeting, and a, a job interview, you just have to call them up and say, I'm stuck in traffic. 
um, you know, I'm, I'm going to be at least a half an hour late or an hour late. I'll let you know when I, you know, when I get out of this traffic and know when I'm going to arrive. Sorry about that. And people realize that that happens. So it's not like they're going to say, oh, well, then you fail. You know, you're not going to get that job because, you know, you didn't plan well. It probably that's not going to happen. People realize that things happen. And if you call up and let them know and, and so on, then that'll work. They'll reschedule you for another time. You know, you can always get another doctor's appointment. You can always get another interview. Things will work out. But when you get stressed and anxious and you start uh, swearing at people in your car and, you know, hollering at the, you know, you get road rage and all of that. Well, that's just your ego and your fear going berserk. And you will just create more of those delays because of your negative attitude. Because inside your mind, you're thinking things like, I'm never going to get there. I'm going to be late. Well, when you say things like, I'm going to be late, you're putting energy into being late. You are trying, you are modifying future probability to make you late. So that'll just make one more red light turn just, turn red just before you get to it because it's, you are now programming your reality to make you late. So as you get into that negative stuff, you actually are getting in your own way. So yeah, just the opposite of beginner's luck. It's, uh, it's what happens when you really want to do something so badly that you block yourself from doing it. Right. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Uh, another thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, energy. Now, I think this is a bit of an interesting one because uh, in, in school, we're taught like about energy and, you know, this is thermal energy, this is chemical energy and, you know, there's a chemical energy store in a candle and the candles burned and it transfers their chemical energy into the surrounding areas, thermal energy store. Um, but what I think is really interesting is um, what energy is. So I was wondering if you could explain what energy is uh, from an MBT perspective, because like objectively, energy can't really be explained as such. It's more of a, a metaphor. Yes, exactly. It's a metaphor. Energy is a metaphor for, for something that makes something else happen. You know, that's energy. It takes energy to change things. It's a, it's something that can create a change in something else. That's energy. Energy is a metaphor in a virtual reality. Um, you know, there is no, there is no energy. It's just information. When you play that game where you are driving around in your car or robbing banks or whatever it was you mentioned earlier, uh, um, <laughs> you know, you, you get to do, you know, your little gang warfare in the street and whatever, you know, what's the energy make those cars go? Are they running on gasoline? Well, no, maybe if it's a realistic uh, video uh, video game, you may have to stop and put gas in the car every so often and spend some of your money for gas at the gas tank, you know, if it were that kind of a, a simulation that made you do that. But is it really burning gas in that, uh, you know, in that virtual reality? You, you know, the Sims characters, they drive cars, you know, the, the, they really have, uh, you know, energy that drives them around in the car. And it's just information. So there really is no energy. It's just virtual energy. It's, it's information. But whenever that information is used such that one thing can cause something else to change, that's what we define as energy. Energy is the thing that can make something else change, right? It's uh, 
you know, it's a, um, I don't know, what can we say? It's, it's something that, uh, forces other things to move, to change, to relocate, to whatever, you know, that's, that's energy. So heat is an energy because heat makes things change at the molecular level. The molecules start, start getting, uh, you know, uh, they start moving more, start vibrating larger and larger vibrations. And then sometimes some of the molecules tear themselves loose from the lattice they're connected to and fly off into space. And that's called vapor, you know, and, and, uh, things, everything has a vapor pressure. Even a piece of steel has a vapor pressure. If you wait long enough, the, the piece of steel will evaporate. It's just its vapor pressure is very, very low. So it'll take a very, very long time to do that. But everything has a vapor pressure. So heat energy tends to, uh, you know, make molecules move around fast and that causes them to get hot. So at least that's our model for it. But see, that's just another model. It's another metaphor about the molecules moving around and that's heat. It's just another metaphor. So our life is, is really metaphorical and a way to, you know, a, a way to see that is that look at all the things in physics, you know, you bring up energy, but look at all the things in physics that are basic. The basic things are things like time, mass, space, um, spin, gravity. You know, it's just basic, basic things like that. And everything else is computed from those. So, the space and the time go together to make velocity and acceleration and force and so on calculate out of, out of those simple things. But yet all of those basics of physics don't come from anywhere. They just are. You know, it's a, it's a mystical, mystical physics, right? These things don't come from any place. They don't have a cause. What causes time? You know, what, what causes space? What causes any of this? Well, there are no causes. They just are. It is what it is because it is. You know, well, that's that's what mystics say. <laughs> that it just is because it is. So in in science, most of the fundamentals have no cause. We don't know where they come from. So all the rest of the stuff is computed based upon these things that just are because they are. So that, that lets you know that Fundamentally, we're talking about metaphors and relationships between things. The things of themselves, the fundamental things in themselves just exist because they're a part of the rule set. That's why they just are. They're defined in the rule set. That's what, that's what creates them. And they're defined in terms of their relationship to other things. So. That's just the nature of our world, and energy isn't any different. You know, there is no energy. There is no light. There's just information. Right. Okay. And rules. Right. So, from that, could you say that things like uh, spin and gravity, like you say, could you argue that things like that are what make uh this reality um well i shouldn't i won't say that they make it i guess we could say that in a way you know you take space space is one of them and you take mass mass is one of them and then you you take time 
Well, now, once you have time and space, then you can move things around. That allows you to move, right? You can, a certain amount of distance per unit time is a velocity. And if you have a change in velocity per unit time, you have an acceleration. So just with mass, space, and time, you have objects that can move and accelerate. So all your motion of things, and they all have kinetic energy, right? All that motion, all that mass moving is is full of kinetic energy. Uh, in a gravitational field, things that are that uh, are attracted, or let's say they have a gravitational force, well, that gives them energy, potential energy if you hold them still, and then kinetic energy if you let them move toward each other. So, yes, it's the time, the mass, the uh, uh, you know the basic, uh, or shall we say, basic forces. I guess that uh, that people uh, talk about. You know, all those things are kind of fundamental. And all the rest of our world is built up out of those things. They all um, just are because they are, and our world is made up of them. That's because those are the fundamental things defined in the rule set, and everything else is made up of of the interaction between those things, like the interaction between space and mass and time. There's a there's an interaction which allows things to move. Without without those three things, nothing nothing could move. You need space for it to move in. You need something that actually moves, and you need, uh, you know, time that uh, says how, uh, you know, the, how the motion takes place from one point to another, one time to another, one point to another. So, yes, we do uh, create kind of everything out of these basic things that just exist. Right, it's, okay, thank you. Yeah, everything's created out of the math. Everything's, you know, people wonder why does our physical reality seem to be so mathematical that you can use mathematics to describe all this physical stuff. And math is really good at describing the physical world. That's what physics is. Really, it's a, it's using mathematics to describe physical reality. And we, we look at our reality and say, wow, it's amazing that our reality is so mathematical. Well, it's because it's being computed. In equations, you know, in a computer, of course it's mathematical. That's the way it's put together. It's put together with rules and rule sets. And that is math and logic. And that's why our reality is like that. So there really is no force. There is no, you know, solidity. There is no energy. There's no light. None of those things. There's only information that describes those things. Right. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Uh, and another thing I wanted to ask about was from an, uh, well, there's been cases, um, I'm not sure if you know, but there was this image going around for a while of this uh, man. It was like a 1930s, 1920s kind of black and white picture. And it was of a man uh, holding holding his hand up to his ear like he was holding a phone and things like that. And what I was going to ask is that from an MBT kind of perspective, would things like like time travel and changing the past or going into the future and changing things from there, would, would things like that be possible? Well, it's very possible to uh, to um, get around in the past databases, but they're just databases. You can't you can go to that database. And you can make changes there in the sense that you can rearrange things and then see 
how that would cha- have changed things. If it had be, if, if it had been this way instead of that way, what difference would that have made? You can do that kind of analysis there, but it doesn't have any effect on the present and it doesn't have any effect on future probability. The only thing it has effect on is you because you may actually learn things or change yourself based on your what if analysis that you do in these databases. So if you come back different, then that difference could be spread around in this reality, but that's the only effect that you have on this reality. So the, the, um, the Hollywood uh, butterfly effect where you make a change, you go back in the past, you make a change and then that changes everything in the present. You see, and it modifies the future. It doesn't work that way. Past is past. When the past is done, it's done. After that, it's nothing but a record. It's nothing but in, you know, but a, but a, uh, a record you can look up. It's no longer alive in the sense that it's making free will choices. There's no more free will choices. It's just a historical record of what happened and how it happened and why it happened. And it can be a very detailed record. It could have all the emotional data as well as the, you know, the physical activity. Also the emotional data, the thoughts, the feelings, all of that might be included in it. But it's just information. So there's no butterfly effect. That does not work. You can go into the future, the probable future, only the probable future. There is no future. You know, the future is not a done deal, but there is a probable future. And you can go into that probable future and see what's likely and see what's unlikely. And you can modify those likelihoods with your, with your intent. But it's only probable. Just because you see that doesn't mean that's going to happen. It kind of depends on, you know, how, uh, you know, what the, what the probabilities are that it's going to change. Some things don't change much in time. Some things are very long term. You know, people go to build a, a skyscraper that's, you know, 100 stories high. Well, that's a long term project. You know, it probably is five years just in the planning and the architecting and the materials and the costing and the funding and the finance. And, you know, it goes on a very long time and they may have a, a schedule that, you know, a decade later, they'll actually be done with the building. So those sorts of things. You might look at that and say, well, there's a probability a building's going to sprout up over there 10 years from now, you see, and that may be a very strong probability because people are working on it and they've gotten funding. But let's say it's an idea, but they don't have any funding yet. Well, now it's a much weaker probability. It may or may not end up there because, you know, whether they get the funding or not is maybe unlikely, you see. So some things you can... You can look at that are pretty far in the in the future, but the probable futures are really good, pretty solid number. And other things change on a dime. Even if you knew what it was probable 10 minutes from now, it wouldn't necessarily be probable 10 minutes later, you know, because they just are very changeable. They have a lot of uncertainty. It's all about uncertainty. How much uncertainty does the thing have in its, uh, you know, in, in its equations for probability? So there is no butterfly effect. You can get in past databases and probable future databases. Uh, you can do analysis in there. You can get into them in a way where you just look at it, you know, look at the, like a voyeur, you know, like you're looking at a movie and there's ways to get into it. Like you're in the movie, you're a character in the movie and you're interacting with it. You can do those both ways. So it's a really a pretty amazing database to, uh, to work in, but it's just a database. It's not, uh, it's not full of 
individuals making free will choices. That's what makes it past is that the free will has already been exercised and that's what happened or that's what could have happened in probability space. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Thank you, Tom. Uh, another thing I wanted to, to cover, which I thought was quite an interesting question, was uh, you see animals, uh, cats and, and dogs, uh, raccoons, things like that, um, and they're, they're all in the they're all in the present moment. You know, they're all they don't they're not thinking about what happened thirty seconds earlier. They're not thinking about what's what's going to happen. What am I going to have, you know, for dinner? Um, they're just kind of there and in the present moment. And obviously the present moment is an optimal kind of mindset or configuration to be in. So as we evolve, as the the cat's consciousness over however many years, million years, whatever, evolves into a more kind of advanced consciousness. So now they're more aware like like us and it's like a human conscious consciousness now. Uh, they've they they're able to think more now about the future and they're able to be you know be more fearful of the future or not letting go of the past so from that uh kind of perspective why don't we kind of just stay de-evolved as cats or dogs or you know so we so we kind of just stay in the present moment all the time well we have to look at this problem in terms of decision space Decision space is a, is a metaphor, a term for all the possible choices that we know of that we have, you know, the things that we can do. Okay. How many, how many ways, how many choices do you have at a particular moment to do a particular thing? So animals have a relatively small, you know, decision space. There's only certain things that they can do. You know, if it's a cat, you know, it can sleep, it can be awake, you know, it can meow, it can, you know, claw the curtains, you know, it can do things, but it has choices to make, but it's a limited set compared to, say, the choices that a human makes. A human has, you know, tens of thousands more choices and things that it can do. Its its reality is a lot deeper and broader with lots of more possibilities because of the decision space being bigger. So that's really what gives us more choices. We have a lot more choices because we have a lot bigger decision space. And sometimes we get wadded up in that decision space. Yes, we can't let go of the past. We we live in the future. We do other things because we have such a big decision space. We can get, uh, you know, we can confuse ourselves with all the decisions that we have and which, which one's better than which and why. So, but that's, you know, that's not a disadvantage. Having the, the bigger decision space is an advantage. It gives us opportunity, opportunity for growth. If we don't use it very effectively, well, that's just us not being very efficient at growing up. But at least we have that opportunity available to us. Whereas the cat uh, lives most of its life in the present, but it doesn't live all its life in the present. Cats and dogs and horses and so on, they have a future and a past as well. They can anticipate things happening in the future. Uh, they can uh, remember things that happen in the past. They can learn from past experience. They don't just live in the moment. But the depth of their awareness in the present 
and the depth of their awareness in the past and the depth of their awareness in the future are all very small compared to ours. Their past is probably fairly short, probably doesn't go back a real long time, you know, it, uh, before it just kind of fogs out and they don't have very specific memories anymore. They're not, they don't have the detail and their concern about the future is also, it's not as, it's not as detailed. It doesn't have all the choices in it, all the things to think about that we do. So it's just their, their level of evolution has gotten them to a point where they can deal with that particular decision space that they have. And the more evolved they get, the bigger their decision space is. And that's within a species too. It's not just between species. Within a species, there are dogs who are more evolved than other dogs. There are dogs who have bigger decision spaces than other dogs. And that's because they've earned that with a, with a, an improved quality of consciousness. So among humans, there are humans with small decision spaces and humans with large decision spaces. The ones with the very smallest decision spaces, we generally call them depressed. They don't have very big decision space. It's just them and, and how bad the world is. You know, it's them and their problems. That's all that exists. They generally can't see a whole lot of other choices. They don't see other ways that they could live their life that would be profitable and positive and happy. They only see the one or two or three choices that they've got and that they, that they can think of and they're all awful. So they've got a very, very small decision space when you're depressed. But if you grow up and you get rid of your fears, your decision space goes way up because now you have a lot more information to deal with. You live in a much deeper, broader reality. Um, you, you see things, gather information, process things in ways that people who have smaller decision spaces don't even know exist. So it's just your decision space has to do with how evolved you are. But giving humans a smaller decision space isn't going to help them out. It would just limit their opportunities to things that would be easy, perhaps. Uh, things that aren't that challenging. You know, that would not be a service toward our, our growth. Our growth is served by a huge, by a big decision space. And we have to be clever enough to make the good decisions, to pick those decisions that are profitable for us for growing up. Now, an interesting thing about picking good choices is that for, uh, for anything that's particularly meaningful, there's usually one or two or maybe three positive ways that you could make a choice. Good, you know, that would be good choices. And there's probably a thousand ways that you could make a bad choice. You think about that, any, any decision that you might make, you know, let's say, uh, you know, you make a choice whether or not you're going to uh, study in school and, uh, you know, and make good grades. So there's only a couple of ways you can do that. It's not like you have thousands of ways to do that. The only way to do that is to do your homework, pay attention in school, you know, try to learn, apply yourself, put energy to it. So that's kind of it. That's, there's not like 20 ways to do that. There's only one or two. But think of all the ways to not do that. Think of all the ways to not learn and succeed in school. There's thousands of things you could do that are on a path to not succeed in school. You see? So all of our choices, as particularly as they get meaningful, there's only a few good choices, but many, many, many poor choices. So you have to get better and better at picking out 
the good choices, the ones that will help you grow up and lower your entropy from those that are just salve to the ego or, you know, salve to the fear or um, things that you just believe are that way, but they're not really good choices. They're just your belief in them. So all of those choices are helpful. What we have to do is learn to pick the few good ones out of the huge supply of poor ones. Right. So simply put then, a a wider decision space uh, is directly proportional to the quality of your consciousness. Yes. The, The more quality of consciousness you have, the bigger your decision space is. The more you understand, the more data you get. Let's say you've evolved to the point where the data that's in those databases about people, uh, about their emotions, about uh, what's wrong with them physically, emotionally, spiritually, whatever, all that data just comes with them. So when they walk up and shake your hand and say, hello, I'm George, you not only get a body and a name called George, but you also get all that other information comes with them as well. Their state of mind, their spiritual uh, growth, their health, their, you know, everything about them, where they are, their happiness. Are they sad? Are they upset? Is their life good? And a lot of those things just come with that person other than just a body and a name and a name George. So you have so much more information to deal with when you interact with people. Now, that information is available to you. That doesn't mean you have to access it. It just means it's available to you. So if you have some need to, you know, want to help George out and he's not feeling very well, well, you can access that medical data, use your intent to modify future probability for better health, and you can do that for George, help him get over whatever physical problem he has. You see, that's an opportunity. Those are more choices that you have, or you could not do that. You could just not look at any of that data and you don't help George get over anything because George has to deal with that by himself. But those are choices. You see, it makes your decision spaces big, not because you make so many more decisions, but because you have so many more choices to make about, you know, things that are possible for you to do. Possible choices go way up. So this, the more you grow up, the lower your entropy, the bigger is your decision space. Right. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Uh, another question I found uh, quite intriguing is uh, the concept or the theory of, so we're inside the LCS, but is it possible that the LCS is inside of VR and that VR is inside of VR and the VR that holds that VR is also inside of VR and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it possible? The answer is yes. There's nothing that uh, logically says that can't happen, but there are practical constraints that says it's very unlikely that that happens at least to, to, uh, you know, at least very far. Now here we are virtual reality and we're creating virtual realities. So we can see that they're nested from our viewpoint because we are one and we're creating virtual reality games and, and uh, virtual reality, you know, goggles and platforms, and they can get pretty elaborate. And, you know, 20 years from now, they'll be even, uh, you know, more elaborate than we can imagine now and more realistic. 
So we know you can have virtual realities inside of virtual realities, but the problem with them being nested is that it's just poor computer science design to nest virtual realities. When you nest them, everything in the, in the, um, can we say derivative virtual reality, you know, the one downstream is, let's say A creates a virtual reality, you know, A is a virtual reality and it creates virtual reality B, which creates a virtual reality C, which creates a virtual reality D and so on. Well, all of those virtual realities, you know, B, C, and D all depend on A. And all the data there has to flow through A. They all go back to A. So if A has a problem, if A blows up, well, all the rest of them disappear as well. They're not independent. You see, they all depend on each other. They're, and it's very, um, well, you know, it's very um, a convoluted as far as the system having to do that. So the system, let's say we make a virtual reality. So we are in a virtual reality. So we're using a virtual computer that the system has to render. We're using, you know, we make up the code and the computer and it creates this virtual reality. Well, our larger conscious system has to render us a little metal box called a computer and all of its components and all of the logic that's in that. And then from that, we make up another virtual reality that also has a computer in it. Well, now that virtual reality still has to flow back to that same consciousness that's making up, you know, that has to produce a uh, a data stream. So it produces a data stream in in virtual reality A, and then things in virtual reality A produce data streams in virtual reality B, but they're all still connected to the same source, which is the consciousness computer. You see, all of them, because the, the characters in A that are making virtual reality are virtual characters. They're avatars. With virtual computers making another virtual, a virtual virtual reality, if you will. So the computer itself, consciousness, has to work through all these levels. It has to do things in A, which then do things in B, which then do things in C, when it could just as easily have just done C in the first place. You see, it's much easier, much cheaper, and a lot less computation. And it's much more stable because then C is independent. C can function on its own. It's not dependent on what happens in all those other ones as they back up. So the the nested, if they get nested very far, they get very fragile. The more they're nested, it gets so horrendously complex through that nesting interface that they become very fragile. So I say you'd get a lot of breakage and things that go wrong because anything that goes wrong in A or B or C is also going to create problems in D. You see, so D has all its own problems, plus all the problems of all the ones upstream that will cause it difficulties. So it's just not good computer science to design that way. So it's unlikely that we have the many deep. Now, it could be just too deep, you know, uh, one virtual reality with another inside another. That probably would be doable. But if that second virtual reality got to be something that um, would be better off independent, it probably would be broken off and, and made independent because, again, nesting is just not clever design from a computer science viewpoint. So the system isn't likely to do that. This system has evolved. The consciousness, larger consciousness system has evolved. And when things evolve, they become efficient. That's what evolution is all about, making you more and more efficient within the bounds of your environment.
Well, if it's in a computational environment, it's gotten very, very efficient over all the time that it has had to evolve. So I would be very surprised if the larger consciousness system has a lot of sloppy programming in it that is, that is not, uh, you know, not efficient, not good computer science. So it's possible. Yes. It's not likely though that that, that that happens. All right. Uh, thank you, Tom. Uh, so for my, uh, kind of final question, um, I'd like to ask you, so in the past, you've talked about, uh, if the environment for a consciousness is correct and, uh, it's a suitable environment for that consciousness to, uh, move into, the consciousness will migrate in, into that body, providing it, like the body is suitable of, of holding it. Um, but can we go a step kind of deeper and ask where is kind of consciousness m- consciousness made where does it like evolve from if that makes sense okay the uh, larger conscious system has virtual realities let's say and and uh, in this virtual reality there's a rule set that allows the avatars to reproduce so you're going to get more and more Consciousnesses. Okay, so like where does the extra consciousness come from? So you have two avatars, they have babies, and now you have babies that have consciousness. So who fills that seat? Where does that extra consciousness come from? Well, the system, it's a digital system. It can take, say, an average consciousness for human beings at that time and place, and it can just take kind of a, what do we call it, um, um, and now the names are shaping in, in C plus you talk about objects. It can be like a, a general object that would be a humanoid object. And now you can put some random numbers to that to get all sorts of variations on that, on that object. Okay. So the system could take kind of an average consciousness, copy, paste, 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 paste. Now it's got four more that are just like that one. You see, and it can put those in those seats where those four babies were just born. Now it can just copy and paste as many as it wants because it's a, a digital system and consciousness is a, is a thing that can be duplicated. It can be broken off, if you will. You know, you can take a, another, another metaphor of looking at it other than uh, copy and paste would be you break off a chunk. It can break off a little chunk of itself and use that. You know, that's what we are, pieces of the larger consciousness system. So either one of those metaphors work all right. You shouldn't take metaphors too seriously. They're just meta, they're just metaphors to help us talk about things. So the system can create whatever IUOCs it needs to fill whatever, whatever uh, avatars it has. And I think you, when you asked your question, you were talking about, uh, uh, conscious computers. If you have a computer and that computer is able to make free will choices. If those free will choices that it can make are interesting enough to an individuated unit of consciousness, then that individuated unit of consciousness can play that computer as an avatar. Okay. That's how consciousness gets to computers. You can't, you can't um, create consciousness in a computer. You can create a very, very smart expert system that can emulate, say, a human, 
And if you're clever enough and have fast enough computers and huge enough databases, you can probably produce an expert system that would be very difficult to tell from a human. Yeah, you would pass the Turing tests with flying colors, have no problem, uh, uh, you know, being able to trick humans into thinking it was human. So that is just a very good expert system. But that's just looking up databases, you know, going through if-then statements. All that's algorithmic. That's not consciousness. Consciousness, on the other hand, is a is something else altogether. A computer only becomes conscious when it makes free will choices and the system says, oh, look, there's a there's an avatar there called a computer. It's a metal box with silicon chips in it, and it's making these free will choices. Well, they're just about right for an IUOC to go in there and, and uh, play those choices. So then an IUC takes over. Really, it's a virtual computer with virtual silicon chips. The the um, you know the big computer is computing all of that is rendering it so now it just sends its data stream to that IUOC to make the choices rather than making the choices itself so basically you take an NPC a non-player character and you turn it over to a character you turn it over to an IUOC to play it so that's the way that would develop so the conscious computer is really conscious because it has it's conscious just like we are for the same reason. Here we are. We're not a silicon-based. We're a carbon-based, um, you know, thing that evolved here. And it, we make choices that uh, are free will choices. So instead of being played by the computer as an NPC, some individuated unit of consciousness can log on to us and start making those choices for us. The computer just has to stop making the choices itself and let the, IUOC make those choices. So the NPC becomes a, a character, a player. So that's how that, uh, that works. Um, it's made just by taking a piece of the larger system, which can grow as much as it needs to grow. As long as it, uh, you know, has bits, it seems to be able to make more ones and zeros at will. After all, it's all in its mind. We're talking about consciousness. How many ones and zeros can you hold in your mind? How many things can you keep in your mind at, at once? You know, how many things can you do at once? Well, the larger kinds of system being a computer, computers are good at doing a lot of things at once. We're not so good at that, but computers are really, really good at doing a lot of things at once. Partitioning off space and running all sorts of threads, you know, through uh, all sorts of processors. They're very good at doing many things at once. So you can just, Create another uh, piece of uh, of memory and processing, and you know that sort of thing. And there you go; you got another IUOC. That consciousness, though, comes like you your very first question. It comes with feelings. It comes with emotion as well. That's part of the awareness that's built into consciousness. Not just how does that occur? How does the system do that? I have no idea. That's why I started my book with an assumption that consciousness exists to get back to the, the origin of consciousness is problematical because we are consciousness and a thing has trouble seeing its own origins because it didn't exist before it existed. You know, it didn't exist before, you know, but to see itself exist. So origins are really hard 
So you have to you kind of come to the conclusion that it's just something that is outside of our ability to, to know. It just is. So that's my mystical assumption. It just is. Just like the physicists who say time and space and spin and mass and gravity, all those things just are. They just are. They're there. Well, that's kind of mysticism when you do that. Science would just, would probably, uh, you know, um, would probably go apoplectic if they heard me saying that they were based on mysticism, but it's the same sort of thing. You know, I, my mystical assumption is conscience just is because it is. And here it is, we see it, so it is, and they start their physics from the very same background, from the very same roots. You know, that physics is all based on mystical assumptions about space and time and spin and what those things are. And they just are. They come from nowhere, really. They just are. Right, okay, thank you, Tom. Um, I think that's all the questions I... uh I had for this session. Uh, thank you very much for your answers. They were very helpful. Um, okay. Now. Well, 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 let me ask you a question then. We'll turn the tables a little bit. Let me ask you. Um, you seem to have to have um, at least either read all of MBT or enough of it that you really understand it, and you've obviously listened to enough of these uh, of my talks and on videos that you seem to understand them very well. How do you interact with your peers? How do you interact with the other uh, kids in school, uh, you know, your age or younger or older? And is this information something you just keep to yourself and private? Or do you have friends that you discuss these things with? Or what's uh, what's it like having all that information? And uh, do you have people to share it with? Um, <laughs> well, um, I speak about it with uh, I speak about. MBT and you know different realities and the LCS and things like that quantum physics with my dad um but he's really the only person I share it with and the main reason for that is even if I was to approach the subject tentatively uh with some of my friends one of my major concerns is that I've hinted at it a few times um but one of my major concerns is that I they will react in the conventional fearful manner um kind of thing so uh if i if i bring it up they you know they'll they'll put it off as kind of oh kyle's got a bit kyle's got a bit mental um but uh, yeah that's one of my major things i talk about it i try to talk about it a bit with my mum as well but she's not really interested uh in a lot of the things I tend to talk about. I've got this one friend at school. I brought the subject up to him and he seemed interested in it, but not interested enough, if you know what I mean, to the point where he'd kind of go do his go do his own thing, do his own research. Um but I think it's hard in a way, kind of having all this all this information and not having very many people to share it with. One of my classmates actually said, uh, what if when we die, we uh, respawn in another world? And it's just when people say things like that, because obviously to them, it's very crazy and out of this world. When people say things like that, it's really hard to kind of not just say, you know, that is 
basically what happens. <laughs> <laughs> but I know, obviously, if I approached it like that, everyone would look at me, look at me a little bit uh, mm-hmm. not right and put me off as I've gone a bit, gone a bit crazy. But um, it would be nice to have more people to share it with. But at the same time, I I'd like to think that it gives me kind of this sense of uniqueness and i say that not out of a place of ego of course but i like to think that uh i'm not above them i'm just different yeah you know i suspect that if i asked your father the same question he'd give me a very similar answer (laughs) he'd probably say that there were very few people in his environment uh, that he could talk to, and he probably uh, would give me an answer very similar to yours, and that uh, there's just not that many people where he works, or you know, other people he's involved with socially or or, or otherwise uh, that he can talk to because they just don't understand, and they will tend to have an emotional or a, an egotistical kind of a, a view at it, and they'll look at him like uh, this, you know, this yeah, there's something wrong with their with their mind, right? They've yeah. So it is that way, but you know, in a way, it's that's okay. You get used to that after a bit, and it's not really a problem. It's okay because you see, you see reality in a much bigger picture than most other people do. But that's all right because if you just let other people be other people and know that they're they have to evolve and figure things out on their own in their own way. And don't think less of them. Just think that, like you say, they're different. Then that's all right. It, uh, at least you got your dad to talk with. And uh, you've got uh, a lot of things on the Internet where you can go, you know, interact. And there's probably, you know, other uh, chat spaces like the, you know, the MBT forum would be one. But there's other places where you can go and interact with with uh, other people and maybe one day we'll have an event somewhere near you and you can come to the event and then there'll be a whole room full of people that you can uh, that you can interact with which will be really uh, really a lot of fun yeah i i'd like to think that um well i think it is true in fact that the word of of mbt and uh i think my teacher called it uh reality hypothesis reality theory or something a virtual reality hypothesis. Um, I'd like to think that MBT and the virtual reality hypothesis is becoming more widespread and slowly becoming more accepted because of, especially because of the kind of age we're growing up in now. Well, the younger generations are growing up in now with, you know, the PCs and the laptops. And I feel like if you bring it up to them, uh, they're more open-minded to it because you know they've grown up with it themselves you know playing these Mm -hmm. these games and these virtual realities and simulations and i think because of that uh they'd be uh a lot more open to the idea of this place being a being a virtual reality and Mm -hmm. an interesting experience actually happened i'm not sure how long it was a few months back i think um I was playing on one of my games and my dad, uh, I didn't get to look at it fully, but my, my dad said, you know, Hey Kyle, look, look at this. And I turned around quickly and he, what he was kind of looking at his phone on the table and I saw his phone, um, shift a little bit, like he moved it without touching it. And I think it's just 
small events like that, uh, I'd like to think they're like little nudges from the LCS as to kind of say, hey, uh, this is a virtual reality. Don't lose hope kind of thing, if you know what I mean. <laughs> um, but it, it's definitely a breath of fresh air uh, to, to experience uh, experiences like that every now and then just as almost like a reality check um to kind of just say you know this is this is a virtual reality but um i think just the possibility that this place might be a vr it was just so intriguing to me that i had to kind of go do research just because you know despite how crazy i thought my dad had gone when he first introduced me to the concept I I tried to kind of say you know let's let's take a step back take take a bit of a look maybe it's not maybe it's not as crazy as as it sounds and here I am now so <laughs> yeah I'm glad I'd like to think of it as a journey I'm I'm glad I've made this journey down the path of MBT down the path of virtual reality because I feel like it's not only helped me grow as an individual but help me help others grow as well by uh, projecting some of my knowledge onto them, but not in a direct way, teaching them things about meditation and uh, the present moment and how we can control things like, you know, anger, being more accepting. And I think just by introducing these concepts to people, you can't force these things onto people, I don't think. Um, but I think if you introduce it to them, it's better than kind of leaving them to their own devices. So I'm glad I've taken this, this path. I've walked the path of MBT. Um, and I think it's really helped me grow as an individual and helped me help others grow as well. Then you don't find being different to be a, a big problem in your life. That's something you've integrated the, the being the being different is okay. You accept that, and that's not uh, that's not a you know a problem that you have to bear. It's just uh, okay. Yeah, I I think at first I won't lie. I kind of oh, it was a couple of years back, I'd say, but I did get these uh, subtle feelings of superiority. Um, but I'm glad as time's kind of gone on uh, through meditation and kind of naturally they've kind of faded. And now I just feel like, like I said, I'm not superior. I'm just different. And I think that's that's a nice way to to look at things. And I, I'm glad I have I've obtained the knowledge. Thanks to you, uh, Anthony P.K. Holly, you know, different uh, teachers. And I think they've each given me knowledge that I couldn't have ta- have attained uh, otherwise. And I'm really, really grateful that I've managed to walk this journey, walk the path, get, get all this knowledge and grow, you know, get experience, lowering entropy, lowering ego. And I'm really glad I've managed to uh, keep lowering entropy and still a long way to go. And like like you said, it's kind of a, a never-ending path, but I think it's yeah. a never-ending path I look forward to kind of walking down. So so how old are you, Kyle? What's your what's your age? 
Um, well, I turned 14 three months ago, so I'm 14 now. 14. Yeah. Well, you got a good head start. Seeing bigger pictures. That, uh, yeah, that, I didn't get started in that until I was in my 20s. So you're, uh, you're ahead of me. That's good. I think it's, I think it's difficult. Um, I think you said it actually before. It's very difficult. You need to kind of unlearn what you've learned because we grow up, we're, we're born, we, we grow up and we have this, uh, inherent belief that this is all there is. You know, this table's hard. I can touch it. There's nothing more to it than that. And even in school, you know, we're taught this is what happens. Uh, this is light, this is a particle of light, this is, you know, an ion, this is whatever. And we're taught, even from a very young age, you know, from the time we start school, that everything is physical and everything's objective. And I think getting out of the mindset of objectivity and coming into kind of the world of subjectivity is a hard but very crucial step to... Uh, lowering entropy and lowering you and I'm I'm glad that I've managed to take that kind of first step uh, I'd like to think as well that people as they evolve in both this VR and, and other VRs I'd like to think that people gradually over time will lower their entropy by themselves and maybe things like this will they'll be more open to it rather than shut themselves off as like a reaction of fear yeah well i hope so too i think you've done very well i appreciate you answering my questions those are uh, those are real good answers um to let me know how someone that's 14 is able to uh, add this bigger picture viewpoint to their to their life but i think you said it very well is that um, integrating the intuitive side, the the uh, subjective side of life, is a very rich, a very enriching, and a very positive thing, because that's where most of all the significance is. <laughs> that's the that's the place where relationships are. You know, that's the place where the love is, and the caring, and the family, and uh, the uh, you know the lots and lots of choices that you're going to have. Uh, are not going to be objective choices because you just won't have enough information to make objective choices. Almost every decision you'll ever make that's important will not be an objective decision or an objective choice because you don't have enough information to be objective, you know, to, to say, ah, okay, logic says this is the one path. You almost never get that way. So you have to develop this subjective, intuitive side really to deal with the most important and significant parts of life. And as you get older, I think you'll find this path is more and more valuable. Uh, you know, the older you get, it's just going to get more valuable. And as you continue with it and hang on to it, you'll see there'll be many decisions that you'll come to that require intuition, require bigger picture knowledge, understanding of yourself and others, and that uh, those choices will be a lot It'll be a lot easier for you to find those few good choices than it would be otherwise. Because people who believe that everything is objective 
um, have very little very little to grab hold of when they have to make these life-changing subjective choices. So they guess. And when you guess, you're usually wrong because guessing is almost like a random thing in the sense that and when there's only a couple of things that are good choices and thousands of things that are bad choices, that's not a good situation which you should guess. You need to have, you know, you need to have some intuitive and understanding to deal with those things that you don't have uh, enough to make logical deductive choices. So I think it's going to be something that you're going to get a lot out of as you as you grow older. I'm glad to see that uh, somebody as, as young as you are is interested enough to take the time to follow it and to learn it. That's super. Says uh, very good things about you, Kyle. So I'm, I'm glad you came today. And we did get to do this for, uh, I guess we did an hour's worth. That's good. And I think it'll be helpful for the other people, particularly young people listening that uh, this is not something that requires you to be 50 years old to to think about. You know, there's there's spaces for this at every age. Matter of fact, I think we should we should try to inter- introduce some of the big picture concepts, you know, in kindergarten and first grade and second grade just to let people think bigger pictures than just the the uh, the one view that we give them now. I think that would be helpful. We need to teach um, children to think and come to come to their decisions and choices based on their own experience, not based on what they're what they've memorized. So, good work. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Okay. Thank you, Tom, and thank you, Carl, for today's session. And maybe just one notice: if any teenagers have been watching today's session. You're more than welcome to contact me and to join us for whatever we have the fifth youth files to chat because uh, the participation numbers have been going down. I think we started with four and now we are down to one and we cannot go any lower than that. So <laughs> let's, let's go back up again. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thanks, Oliver. <laughs>